Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 27. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com, it's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. Fooleman, how you been doing? I've been out of commission for a week, so you need to update me on everything that happened in the NHL. I have some good news. Mm-hmm. Pretty much nothing awesome. happened in the NHL. Now, I'm understating that a little bit. There were a series of free agent signings. Uh, in a lot of cases, it's just guys extending with their teams or RFA deals being locked up prior to going to arbitration. Um, there was a Tom Wilson contract that we'll talk about a little bit later that everyone kind of made fun of. Uh, but by and large, we are now full in to the dog days of hockey summer. The good news is, the dog days of hockey summer is also when PensionPlanPuppets.com, the website that we write for, does the top 25 under 25. Uh, So that's our ranking of the Toronto Maple Leafs system, where we go through all of the players who are under 25 years of age as of July 1st, and we rank them, or we rank the top 25 of them anyway. We're not going to spend, you know, too much time trying to figure out where Ryan McGregor ends up. But we... He should be at 34. Put them in a, <laughs> and if you have a, a, a place higher, then you are not... You have nothing... You have no idea what you're talking about. You have lost all credibility. Exactly. Which, by the way, is still my favorite comment we've ever gotten on one of these articles. And we ranked... It was somewhat we were ranking, like, 21st instead of, like, 17th in the eyes of the commenter. And they said, but you have lost all credibility. And Do you we remember like, who it okay. was? Because I don't. I don't. Um, which saddens me. I know that we've gotten a lot of flack for our ratings of Andrew Nielsen. Yeah. He, uh, one commenter, he inspires a lot of love. Yeah, didn't one commenter accuse us of having an agenda to ruin Andrew Nielsen's career? Uh, if I recall correctly, he said that we were obligated to put a hit piece out on him. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't remember why we would be obligated to do that, but apparently we were because we're trying to destroy Andrew Nielsen's career. Man, if we had uh, that type of power, we'd... We wouldn't waste it on Andrew Nielsen. <laughs> no. Also, I, I do find it odd. It's like, you realize we're Leaf fans, right? Like, I would like nothing better than for us to hit on every single draft pick and for it to be a home run and for all of the players in our system to be superstars. But that is not the reality. Um, and furthermore, there's a lot of, you know, there's been a general tide of optimism in Leafland in the last couple of years, which is good. And which, by and large, has been justified, I think. The team is in better shape than it's been for, oh man, 20 years? Um, At the same time, when you're comparing it to lists of the past, yes, the Leafs' top 25 under 25 right now is very strong. Maybe as good as it's like, probably better than it's ever been. But a lot of that strength comes from the star players near the top of the list. So Austin Matthews. William Nylander, Mitch Marner, Morgan Riley. I don't think we're giving too much away by saying that those guys are quite highly ranked on this list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you get into the bottom half of the list, um, you're looking at a lot of prospects, and the Leafs' prospect pool is just not that deep at the moment. I'm not saying it even necessarily should be that deep. You know, we're a contending team now. Uh, we're picking in the 20s. Um it's not, you know, a given that we would have these dynamite prospects waiting off stage anymore because most of them have made the NHL. But the result is, is that in the lower ends of the list, I think there are a lot of players that people are maybe talking themselves into that are realistically kind of faint hopes. Like in the past, uh, I looked at this once and 
of all the players who rated below 12th in the top 25 under 25, the number that have panned out is, I think, two currently. It's Connor Brown and Zach Hyman. Um, Surely Andreas Janssen as well, right? Andreas Janssen is in the process of doing it, although yeah. he was generally ranked pretty highly by us, but yeah. So he's another one. Mm-hmm. But by and large, you know, this is 15 names a year that aren't really going anywhere. Um, so, you know, that's not uh, to say that all of them won't. I think mathematically, uh, a couple of them, of the guys on the lower part of the list, are going to work out just because those are the odds. But maybe let's not get too carried away with it. Yeah, yeah. It's As you said, the, the people on the lower end of the list are the prospects you can talk yourself into. You know, mm-hmm. um, but other than that, it's like there's a reason they were low picks. Generally speaking, most of most all of them were low picks in the draft or have not necessarily developed the way we would expect a high pick in the draft to develop. So, yeah, there's it, I, I would caution people who who state that, uh, you know, the Leaf system is incredible right now. I, I don't mm-hmm. think that's the case. I think. They're, certainly, they're, as you said, their under-25 NHL talent is incredible. Yeah. Um, it, it's hard to find a foursome of players under 25 as good as Matthews, Nylander, Marner, and Riley. I mean, maybe Winnipeg mm-hmm. has it with um, Laine, Ehlers, Truba, and Connor. And like they have other guys as well, but those are just four that I picked out off the top of my head. Shifley's above yeah. 25 now, isn't he? I think Shifley just turned 25. Yeah, I'll okay, yeah. Up. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I don't think, he, you know, he, so he's kind of aging into his prime. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Edmonton has, I think Clef Baum is still under 25, but they can pair him with McDavid, obviously, and Dreisaitl. Yeah, and then that, um, that's so pretty th- dynamite. I mean, that, that probably yeah. wins just because McDavid is so far and away the best player in the league. Yeah, so and then note, you can add... Uh, did you see yeah. that ESPN piece? So I, I've been off the grid for a week, <laughs> but I, I've, I've still, I still have find time to hate read things. Um, yeah, uh, so ESPN did this thing, and they were ranking, like, the top cores under 25. Was it under 25 or, like, under 27? It was, like, a weird age cutoff. I forget it? what the age was. Anyway, uh, what stuck out to me was that one of the requirements for the exercise that they were doing was the player had to be under team control for three years. And you think, okay, it's good to account for contract status. They didn't consider players who are going to be RFA but who have not signed as being under team control, which means the Leafs did not get credit for having any of Austin Matthews, William Nylander, or Mitch Marner. Which is Because all of them, like that, like what's the point of the exercise then? You know, it's like... The Leafs aren't even a team that like, obviously it makes no sense with them, but if you look at um, the Canucks, they don't have Brock Besser mm. under three years of team control right now, or three years a contract right now. They have him under team control because he'll be an RFA. But like, how would you ever discuss the Canucks' young talent without discussing Brock Besser? No, no. It, it, it's a question of then, like, what was the point of doing this? Yeah. And it did enable David Staples, who is one of the, I would say, dumbest members of the mainstream media, <laughs> very diplomatic, uh, running out of Edmonton. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm. It's it's summer and I'm tired and it's hot outside. I have no time to be nice anymore. <laughs> but yeah, so he had this tweet. It's like, oh, Toronto fans won't like this. Edmonton's ranked number one in core under 25. Here's the thing. I think you can argue that. I think that's probably true because yeah. Connor McDavid is God. But the way that this argument was made was ghastly. It's like, you know, is Connor McDavid better than... Uh, 
you know, Connor Brown, like that key under 25 player that we have locked up for term. It's like, yeah, probably. <laughs> Connor Brown won't have even but, been included, right? Because we only have him on a two-year deal. Do we only have to? Oh, my God. I think so. so. Yeah, I, it's like, I can check. who even plays for our team, in, according to this reckoning? Uh, Let me see when Connor Brown's deal expires. You're right, yeah, and yeah. he goes RFA, yeah. so, yeah. Wait, so uh, actually, if, R- if it was under 27, they have Zach Hyman, though. Oh, and sweet. So, so it literally would have been uh, Hyman, Riley. If it's under 27, I guess you include Zaitsev. That's literally yeah. it. Yeah. Anyway, I, I don't think ESPN has produced good hockey writing really in a long time. Um, yeah. Corey Pronman used to write for them, and he's sort of a famed prospect writer, but he got poached by The Athletic. And as far as I know, ESPN now is basically a bunch of people and Greg Wyshynski. Like, I can't even name who writes for them anymore. I don't read them, so it's, it's not entirely fair, but it's like, I gave up a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I can't help but wonder what the point of that exercise was. Anyway, bringing it back around to what we're doing. Yeah. Um, there is a lot to be excited about on our list. Like, I know that we've said, like, don't get too carried away because I think everyone falls in love with prospects a little bit at this time of year. And you have to just keep in the back of your head, okay, uh, I would say everyone, like, lower than maybe 13th on this list is probably not an NHLer. That's kind of the prior that you go in with. Some of them will be. Um, we talked about that. It's just, if you go in with an attitude of, okay, I'll be really excited if this guy turns into something, then that's great. And then you can start appreciating, okay, if he is going to make it, um, what's it going to be based on? And, you know, it can get interesting to talk about your players. And it is exciting to watch the development of guys who kind of rise across the list. I mean, if you watch the kind of meteoric rise of Connor Brown, Mm -hmm. who was totally unranked the first year after he was drafted, um... And he was, was he like minus 72 that year? Yeah. He had the like most that. insane minus rating. Like, I know plus minus doesn't mean a whole lot. It was just he had a hilariously bad plus minus. But he just sort of surged every single year. And uh, he's wound up being pretty highly ranked in uh, recent editions of the list. So that's been exciting to track his growth. Mm-hmm. And then you look at names of the past, like, uh, you know, Sandra Olin or whatever, and Yuraj Mikas, and like guys who never even had a sniff at the NHL and you think okay maybe we didn't need to get too carried away with those guys at the time but at the same time it's the summer so I guess it's sort of an occasion for getting carried away if now is when you're going to do it so yeah yeah I think one area where the list now definitely is stronger than a list list prior that we haven't already mentioned is that the number of like marginal NHLers that are there or like mm-hmm. NHLers who I think would could conceivably play a death role Right? Yeah. You, you look at guys like Borgman, Rosen, who I think could probably do the same. Um, you look on the forward roster, maybe Trevor Moore right now could play on the fourth line and not look out of place. Maybe someone like Mason Marchment could even do that. Uh, although I guess yeah. I'm a bit iffy on someone like him. Maybe someone like Carl Grunstrom, even though he's not fully formed and probably isn't best served by being in the NHL now, could maybe survive there. Uh, yeah. I think there's, enough, there's more players who you could plausibly argue as... NHL options who you're not ter- you're not you know disheartened to see them there uh, if you absolutely have to mm-hmm. uh, which is a very long-winded way of saying that the Leafs have made a huge effort to kind of mine European leagues 
for guys who do exactly that, who who could potentially compete for those depth roles and can uh, maybe make an impact uh, on the team and surprise us. So far, none of them have made a huge impact on the roster besides besides Zaitsev, but he was obviously signed with that intention. Um, yeah. I am curious to see kind of where Borgman and Rosen wind up this year, Rosen especially, because he had a very, very strong AHL campaign, and uh, from everything I've heard from people who follow the AHL, and then from everything that I saw in the AHL playoffs, he was one of the Marty's best defensemen. Yeah, the thing about Cali Rosen is that he can really skate. Yeah. And uh, he's a quality power play defenseman. He loves to shoot. Like, he kind of unloads the shot maybe more often than you would necessarily like because a shot from a defenseman is usually not a high-percentage shot, even if he has a decent one. Um, the thing is, is that when you're a left-shooting, power-play-minded defenseman, the Leafs don't have a tremendous need for that. Yeah, you're kind of robbed you know? of some of your utility because you're not going to displace Riley or Gardner on the power Exactly. Play. And even then, you know, if you were really short for power play defensemen, like, you know, say one of the two former names goes out, you probably start playing Nikita Zaitsev there because he can quarterback a power play quite effectively. Yes, and we saw so, that in his rookie year. We did. And so Kelly Rosen doesn't have an, a necessarily easy way to get a look in. Like, he would have to be playing offside. He would ideally be killing penalties. Uh, he's not, you know, a dominating physical presence, um, whereas Andreas Borgman is very intimidating and has, like, the musculature of a Greek god, if we're being honest. Yeah. Um, so he, I don't know if he's really got an in there, which is kind of too bad because I like him mm-hmm. as a prospect. I just like any defenseman who can skate. Um, I always find myself kind of thinking that if you can figure out the skating angle of it, that's half the battle for getting an NHL job. And he's certainly got that, but just I don't know if um, everything else is lining up for him. And if he doesn't make... The, uh, the NHL this year, I do wonder a little bit, like, okay, does he start thinking, is it time to go back to Sweden? Because he can earn a perfectly nice living for the next decade or so in the Swedish league, where he's a quality player, and probably a better one than he's going to be earning here in the Leafs organization when he can't crack the NHL. So I think we might be getting kind of close to a decision time on Kelly Rosen, and uh, I'm interested to see that. Yeah, uh, how that pans out. Yeah, the other uh, thing that I find interesting about this year's top twenty-five are where guys like Adam Brooks and Jeremy Bracco fall as um, kind of guys who are very young in their pro career, who didn't necessarily make a huge impact last year on the Marlies. Uh, they're they're interesting because I think at, at various points the fans have been very excited about them, and to some mm-hmm. extent they've fallen off the radar to some degree. Um, With both of them, I think there's still quite a bit of potential there. Brocco especially. Uh, Brocco more so than than Brooks because he is a fair bit younger. And also, you know, Brocco was a winger on a winger-loaded dominant AHL team. So it's sort of understandable why he didn't get a look in it. and some people who I know who watch the Marlies, like Kevin, for example, Kevin said he, he would have played Bracco in the playoffs above some of the guys the Marlies were actually playing, but Keith just chose not to. It's hard to argue with the yeah. results given that they won uh, the Calder Cup, but um, both of them are guys who I'm kind of interested in. Uh, Brooks, because he's still the Leafs' only real center prospect of, of note. Bracco, because... Yeah, I, this is the, the scary thing, is like if you... 
look down the list. It's like who is in the system who is a natural center who is still likely to play that at the next level. And it's Brooks and it's Frederick Gauthier. Maybe Roddy who I think we've... Yeah, maybe. Or, I mean, there's Semyon Durargochinsev who is a center at the moment in junior. He's like the tiniest guy in the world. Mm. Um, so most people are predicting if he makes it as a winger. I'm a little less absolutist about that than most people. Uh, I always like to, to haha point at Braden Point yeah. uh, for the Tampa Bay Lightning, who weighs basically nothing and is not very large either, and he's a very effective center. But I would agree it's not his most likely path. And then you find yourself thinking, okay, does anyone play center in this goddamn organization? Um, and of course, you know, Matthews, Kadri, Tavares is locked in as our top three Cs for the next four years. So we're not as concerned about that at that level. But... At some point, we will want people who can play center again. And that leaves you with Adam Brooks. Yep. Um, Adam Brooks has kind of come into his own a little bit more as the year has gone. He's always been a bit of a late bloomer. Mm -hmm. Like, we didn't end up picking him until his, I believe, third time through the draft. Yeah. Um, after two seasons where he just absolutely torched the WHL to the tune of about two points a game. Uh, and so he had a bit of an adjustment period as the year was going on with the Marlies. Uh, he's kind of come into his own a little bit more. But, he's 22 now, but a lot so you'd of this, really like to see more. A lot of the success yeah, he ahead. saw was actually at, when he was on the wing, though, funnily enough, with the Marnies. Yeah, so it's sort of like, okay, is he really a center prospect? In that case, do we have a center prospect yeah. in this organization? Yeah. Um, well, and then when you factor and, in and, that, I don't know. When you factor in that we're trading yeah. Freddie Gauthier for Max Pacioretty, like... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, any minute now, right? Mm. Just we didn't rank Goche this year. Just keep putting it out into the universe and it'll happen, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like the secret. The secret is keep imagining that, you know, one of the worst GMs in the league trades for your players. And, you know, maybe someday it'll come true. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't rank. I, I guess we should address this briefly. We didn't rank Goche. I think we've talked about Goche enough on here. Uh, we talked about him with Kevin when last he was on. And the reality is... Uh, he's a nice kid. He's defensively solid at the AHL level. He does not show any kind of offense and as a fourth line nhl center even then i think he's not probably up to the task yeah if if you're being nudged out by players who you can claim on waivers that's usually a bad sign for your career yeah and so i i think frederick goche is you know yeah. he'll be While an ahl center here, or he'll play somewhere else we should also yeah. discuss both of our um both of our kind of philosophies when it comes to ranking players here. Mm. Because yeah. a feature or a bug, depending on how you look at it, of our ranking system is that as pollsters or panelists, we don't necessarily all agree on what we should value in a top 25, under 25 list. Some people look at it as, uh, as how much value, who is most likely to be an NHLer and how much value will they provide contingent on them becoming one. Um, other people tend to be a bit more risk-averse in that they will more highly value a player who is in close proximity to the NHL over a player who is uh, further away but may potentially carry higher upside. So there's a real mishmash and conglomeration of ideas. I think Fulman and I both kind of tend to the side where we value kind of the, ability, the, the certainty that someone can play in the NHL, even if it's as a depth rule. As it mm -hmm. relates to Gauthier, the, the issue that arises is that even though we value NHL proximity, 
we value NHL proximity in a player who can actually play in the NHL. Whereas Gauthier exactly. is a player who has played in the NHL, not a player who can play in the NHL, if that makes sense. His, his results in the NHL are pretty horrific. So, yeah, yeah it's, he, even though I, I like guys who, are, who I can see you know, becoming an NHL player, a decent one, uh, in the next year or so, with Gauthier's, I, I just think it's not going to happen anymore. No, I don't think it's on the table. I uh, In the past, I've been really, really gung-ho on NHL proximity. Or the way I kind of describe it, the fulsome way, was how close is this guy to providing some value above replacement level to the Toronto Maple Leafs? Mm-hmm. And so that meant that I favored guys who I thought could step in. Josh Levo was a classic example. He's not dazzling. I, It's not like I ever thought that he was going to let light the world on fire or anything like that. But... He clearly could play some kind of NHL role, I thought. And I still think that he could conceivably, although I don't really see how it's going to happen in Toronto at this point. And so I favor that over guys who were more uncertain. I've kind of softened a little bit on that just because we have, as we said, we have a ton of guys who could probably kind of walk right into a replacement level role and do fine. You know, we have enough depth. We have a ton of left shooting defensemen. We have a lot of wingers, you know, lots of zippy little playmaking wingers. And it starts to become, okay, do we have anyone who's really going to provide value above replacement in the lower part of the list? And it's either guys who are kind of prospects that you're dreaming on who are very raw. Uh, again, Dur Argachinsev is maybe the banner example of that. Or guys like Trevor Moore. Uh, who, again, are very close, but then you wonder, is there any kind of ceiling there? I still favor the latter class just because most prospects fail. Uh, I kind of wonder how many names I could go through on the first couple editions of this list from a few years back before even, like, a hardcore Leaf fan would remember them. Like, did anyone listening to this know who Juraj Mikas was when I referenced him earlier? Uh if you do, then, you know, you are an obsessive and I salute you. And you, need, and you like, need a new hobby. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Please go outside. Get a life, nerd. Um, um, but if you're still here, you're listening to nerds like us. Yeah. So <laughs> we're actually the people who would remember that name. Um, but, yeah, so, so it's like uh, you kind of run out of room to really weigh NHL proximity is what, what I've been finding. Like, you get through the Calais Rosens of the world and... Then you get down to guys who are right on the margins of being NHL replacement players or guys who have an outside shot at more than that. So I was maybe less doctrinaire than I was in previous years. I tr- I won't say I fell in love with a lot of prospects, but like I tried to find some high-end skill down there. Uh, because again, in the, you know, the last 10 names on the list, how many NHL players are we going to have? Maybe one or two. Yeah. The other thing I would mention is that like, Pretty much from 13 onwards, you can, you can honestly scramble the names in my list in almost any order and be like, yeah, you know what? Sure, mm-hmm. go with it. Like, I, I, yeah, that's the thing. Is I, I, If someone wants to like, fight me on, oh, you, how did you rank X person over Y person? Like, you know what? Sure, yeah, you could flip them around. I does not make a difference to me. They're, they're, I don't see a huge value gap there. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the really fun thing about this list is getting to know players that maybe you don't know that much about. Yeah. You know, we researched junior players, uh, guys not necessarily even just on the Marlies, although we get those too, 
but guys who you probably haven't seen play too often and who we haven't either uh, prior to us starting to research. But it's good to just sort of delve in and think, okay, here's what's going on uh, on the lower end of the prospect pool. Uh, at, that doesn't, you know, I, I, I like the ranking element of it. I think that it makes you really think about value in an interesting way. It certainly starts a lot of discussion. Like, I think people would be really disappointed if we just made it, here are some names. But um, We'd get like one third of the hits if we just made it, here are, here are 25 prospect profiles. Yeah, and I mean, the undying truth of the internet is that the best way to get people to engage with something is to have them believe that you're really wrong about something. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to make somebody angry, by God. But at the same time, it's like, if I'm... Uh, okay, I'll say this in a general way. Um, uh, Timashov, SDA, and Bracco are all kind of talented, zippy little playmaking wingers slash maybe a center in SDA's case. I ranked them in a particular order, uh, and they covered a few slots between them, and it's based on how I think their development is currently trending. But you could make a real case to flip any of them around. And I wouldn't say, well, yeah, they each have their points. And it's not that I don't believe in my ranking or that I didn't think about it or try. It's just that the differences in value and projection are so fine that I'm skeptical of anyone who thinks that it's ridiculous to rank a certain way. You know what I mean? Like, leaving Goche off the list, you can say, I really think he should have made it at, you know, 24th or 25th or something. I think that's fine. If, if you think that it's kind of like off the wall uh, to rank him in that range, I think that, you know, you're being way too doctrinaire about what is still much more a very vague art than a specific science. So, yeah, it'll be fun, though. Uh, I'm excited for someone to get really, really mad at me. It happens every year, and I never am quite sure what's going to cause it, but it does happen. So, I'm looking at our list right now. If I had to, without spoiling exactly how you ranked this uh, person, I would say that your ranking of uh, Timoshov is going to ruffle some feathers. Yeah, no, I, uh, and we have a commenter named not Norm Allman, God bless him, who I have uh, interacted with in the past, and he's very high on uh, Timoshov. And so I think he will have some things to say to me <laughs> once that article is written. But, you know, this is the interesting thing. And you know what? And this is the fun thing. Uh, like, if you do disagree with us, yeah. like, we're, we're not prospect experts. By all means, disagree with mm-hmm. us. It, it's, it's, it's fine. We, we can learn a lot from what other people say as well. So Yeah, it, it's fun. Uh, and, you know, we're incorporating. A, we've done a community vote uh, for the first time. So we'll also be looking at what the readers of Pension Plan Puppets thought, but feel free to come in and comment. If you think that we're wrong, please don't say it's like, you know, do you guys eat paint for a living? But, uh, you know, if you think, hey, you were low on him, I think that this guy has a lot to offer, then that's great. I mean, we do that internally. Mm-hmm. Uh, Briggs Stu, who writes for us, had a really interesting article about Riley Stotts, who I didn't rank. But, and, you know, and I didn't agree with everything that he said, but he had a, like a very thorough look at him and saying, you know, this guy has some stuff to offer in this uh, lower range of the list. And I thought it was, you know, really interesting and thought provoking. Um, so that's the most fun, you know, getting to explore some of these names, maybe some of them that you haven't thought about since draft day or since draft day a couple of years ago. And just seeing how these guys are shaping and uh, who to get excited about. So, yeah, uh, we look forward to doing that, notwithstanding our hedges and complaining. Uh, and we hope that you will take the time to read it if uh, you want to learn about some Leaf prospects. So, yeah. 
Yep. All right. So I think that's a that's pretty much everything we wanted to say about that. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Tom Wilson signing. Yeah, baby. Okay. Everyone's been dunking on the Tom Wilson signing. Should they be dunking as hard as they are? Over to you, Arvin. <laughs> um. So I mean, I want to say yes because like it, it, it's a it's a pretty ludicrous contract, no matter how you look at it. Oh, we should actually uh, affirm what it is. Oh yeah, sure. Um, okay, so the yeah, so Tom Wilson signed for six seasons at five point one six six million dollar AAV uh, in terms of the cap hit. The dollar value uh, declines as it goes. Um, there are a lot of signing bonuses early, uh, and then there's much more base salary towards the end. So, it, so it's set up so that it would be quite possible to buy him out towards the end of the deal. Yeah, and somewhat tradable as well in the latter yeah. half of the deal. So the the issue, so as, as has famously been pointed out, uh, Thomas Tom Thomas Wilson, uh, Tom Wilson's uh, career high in points occurred this past season with uh, 35, which is also less than what Zach Hyman has scored this past season as well. Uh, now, you may say, hey, Zach Hyman played with Austin Matthews and William Niedender. Yeah, well, Tom Wilson played with Alex, Ovech- Alex, uh, Alex Ovechkin, Evgeny Kuznetsov, or Nick Backstrom. Pretty much mm-hmm. all, like, a, for a huge portion of his time. He had very high-quality teammates. Uh, and this is the first year where he's actually shown any sort of individual offense. Now, the fact that he's done that riding shotgun to two Hall of Fame level players and another star in Kuznetsov. Uh, that should probably ring some alarm bells. That should probably indicate that, you know what, I don't think this is necessarily his doing, or not entirely his doing. I think he could be he could be carried to some extent. Um, now, Capitals fans have argued against this. And for, first off, I should say to any Capitals fans who listened, your team just won the cup, so it doesn't, like, you should rightly, if you, if you feel like, hey, I don't care, we just won the cup, that is totally justifiable. Right, you, you, mm-hmm. you just won the cup. Um, there's it, there's a Pat Oswalt bit that I always think of at times like this. Mm-hmm. Pat Oswalt does a bit making fun of Kentucky Fried Chicken, mm-hmm. and then in the uh, subsequent to him doing this this bit, somebody interviewed the CEO of Kentucky Fried Chicken, and you know asked him what he thought about Pat Oswalt making fun of him, and Oswalt said. All that guy has to do is say, who the fuck is Patton Oswalt? I'm a billionaire. I don't give a shit. And I feel like it would be totally justified for Cap fans to say, who cares? We won the Cup. I don't give a shit. So if you are a Washington Capitals fan listening to this and still probably drunk from uh, your Cup celebrations, by all means, enjoy it. You have earned it. We're just looking at the dollar values on behalf of the other 30 fan bases in the league. Yeah. So, I don't know. Wilson does have actual value as a, as a player. He is, from what I can tell, decent defensively. He does. Mm-hmm. He is a legitimately quite good penalty kidder. He draws and takes a lot of penalties of his own. He's not useless. However, if you need to play him with superstar-level players in order to coax middling point production with him, and even if you adjust for the fact that all, almost all of his points are on the, are at even strength, even if you adjust for ice time, his point scoring last year was mediocre. Uh, Off a shooting percentage spike, too. Yeah, and with, with the was, shooting percentage He was shooting spike. almost 12%, whereas his career is closer to 8 I think. Yeah, something like that. So it's, I mean, 
I'm just not confident his offense will persist. And ev- like, even if he continues playing with really high-quality line mates. So I-, I just don't get why they necessarily paid this much for him. His previous years were so mediocre. Granted, he was playing with poor players. But when generally when you see very good players play on the fourth line, they, they still outproduce being on the fourth line. Wilson, in, in previous years, just looked like a fourth liner. Looked like an okay fourth liner who also occasionally tries to kill people. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, get, yeah, I'll get into I, that I think... part of him as a player shortly. But mm-hmm. it just, it seems unnecessary. It, it just seems like you could have got him for cheaper. Like, who, who was going to pay Tom Wilson this money? Who was offer shooting Tom Wilson for this money? And if you go... That's the thing is, he was an RFA. Yeah, and, and he probably, he, he's like 24, right? So he probably had arbitration rights. Yeah. His, ar- mm. his arbitration comparables would have been terrible. They would have been nowhere near this money. Yeah. I mean, honestly, Zach Hyman, we talk about him. And uh, Zach Hyman, first of all, is an angel and a good man. Uh, unlike Tom Wilson, who is a trash basket in terms of his moral caliber, in my humble opinion. But, uh, you know, they're both uh, first-line wingers in a sense of they're played with stars. They're, they're the third bananas and- on offensive lines driven by stars. Yeah, and so their job is to go mix it up, forecheck, retrieve the puck. Uh, you, you know, there was a tweet from Corey Hirsch saying, if you're criticizing the Tom Wilson uh, contract, then, you know, try going into the corner against him, which uh, we could talk about that in a second. But that is what Tom Wilson does. He goes into the corner. So if you compare him to Zach Hyman in that regard, uh, Hyman is making 2.25 AAV. You know, if you got Tom Wilson for anything close to that uh, and maybe half his current term, I'd say terrific. It's a great deal. You know, then he's a great utility player. But he's over five, and it's not like the Caps aren't going to have money concerns. After this season, they have to resign Burakovsky, Verana. Um, I think those are the main two names. Uh, when they inevitably resign Brooks Orpik, of course, <laughs> they'll have to pay him too. Um, but the, the thing is, is that like you're taking money and you're giving it to Tom Wilson. I think the Caps are cop drunk still. After yeah. so many years of trying and not getting there, and they think, okay, he brought the sandpaper. I, I had someone arguing with me on Twitter this morning saying, like, look, he brings it in the playoffs. And I'm thinking, you know, he got hot for one playoff run. But uh, I, I don't know that you should be paying this value for that. Yeah, I just, even if you assume that he is entirely what he was last year, I'm not mm-hmm. totally sure he's worth this much money. Um, and we're yeah. focusing a lot on individual offense. and. Last year, Wilson did have a very strong, very strong shot impacts, but again, that's impacted by his teammates. Um, mm-hmm. And in years prior, he didn't have that impact. So it's like, if if you're paying for a guy who needs to be or who is who basically succeeds with like star players, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I feel like that type of player is easy to find. Now I've heard Caps fans online say, "Oh, we tried other players during uh, like on that line, and he was the one who worked the best." and Maybe that's true. Uh, I can't say I know the ins and outs of Capitals line combinations, but my gut is that you could probably find someone who plays with Backstrom, Ovechkin, slash Kuznetsov, like two of those three. You could probably find someone who plays with them pretty well. Um, It'd be surprising to me if Tom Wilson has some unique characteristic that truly allows that line to flourish in a way that other players don't. So it's... I don't know. It's just I don't necessarily see who they were bidding against here. So that's the main takeaway: is if you're convinced, okay, Tom Wilson is a key cog 
in the machine that is the Washington Capitals of today. Uh, his grit, his sandpaper, his forechecking, his penalty killing, his capacity to, Micah McCurdy described it this way, move the game away from five on five, mm-hmm. which if you're a good special teams team is something to think about. The cap- um, which the Capitals are. And they are. Uh, and so that's all great. Um, but again, who was your competition here? Was Tom, like, you know, no one offer shoots anyone. I'm damn sure no one was offer shooting Tom Wilson. Um, again, you talked about arbitration rights. Take the award. You know, it's like, it's just perplexing that they were convinced he is a core player. Because that's what this contract indicates, is that he's an essential sort of member of the key core now. You know, there are forwards that are assigned uh, beyond the next two seasons are Ovechkin, Kuznetsov, Baxter will be UFA, and then Oshie, and then Eller. And Eller's on a great deal. He's very cheap. Uh, And then Tom Wilson. And it's like, He's easily the worst player of all of those. Um, I don't really understand what they were going for there. I, I do think that it was just, you know, they won and they're getting heady off it. I, that's what ruined the, the Red Wings was that they had uh, a quite good team and they overpaid complimentary pieces to keep them there. And now they're staring down a ton of insane contracts like Justin Abdicators uh, because they believed in what those kind of guys brought. So, and again, they won a cup. It doesn't really matter. And once uh, Ovechkin and Backstrom age out, which is not that far off, they're not going to be that good anyway. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm sure they were just thinking keep the band together, but there was really no need to do any of this. Yeah. It, it's just, it's confusing to me. It, it, I, I'm not convinced that Wilson is, I don't think Wilson's as bad as people are saying. I think he's a player who actually, mm-hmm. like his, his on-ice play is, is not awful i think he's a yeah he's, i think he he can he can be a good um utility piece in a in a, in a top nine right and we saw that i mean mm. the, the capitals bore that out it's just that's what i would want to pay him like i don't want to pay him as if he's a driver of a top line and that's that's yeah. sort of what this contract is implying um yeah <laughs> i wonder what william nylander is asking for is, is going to be now i aren't I, yeah I that's mean, the i'm thing. being i don't think it <laughs> really changes it that much they're in very different stages of their career um they're they're not comparable to one another in any way but like no if there's even a, a short-term deal i wonder if the agent's like okay well we're not taking less than tom friggin wilson even on a yeah, short-term we're deal. in a world where tom wilson is making 5.1 you know if that's an accurate description of value then william nylander should be making 12 like i'm sorry it's yeah. just bonkers yeah so um, i just it just seems, it just seems like I, a, a contract that's going to bite them in the butt eventually. At the other, on the other hand, they, they won a cup, so who cares? Yeah, and, you know, it's not going to bite them next year, I don't think, because they have succeeded thus far in keeping the band together. Uh, they'll worry about Burakovsky and Verena when the time comes. But uh, for now, you know, they're ready, primed to try and repeat with the same group. I think they've got an uphill battle to do it, but they're still a good team. There was another uh, series of signings uh, that I kind of wanted to talk about last time, but I'll turn it around to this week. Signings that people were kind of dunking on, and they were for the New York Islanders. Um, As you may know, the New York Islanders have had a somewhat traumatic offseason. They lost John Tavares to a team that you may have heard of called the Toronto Maple Leafs. Everyone in their fan base hates us. Um, but they also made some signings that were questioned. 
and some trades that were kind of questioned. They took Matt Martin. Uh, they signed a AHL-level enforcer named Ross Johnston for four years at $1 million per. They signed Leo Komarov, who, again, you probably recall, for four years at $3 million AAV. Um, and a lot of people were th saying, like, this is insane. And I don't like it. But I think that there's a logic to this that people are maybe underestimating. The question is, should you concede that your team is going to be bad for four years at a time? I think that that's probably too long. You know, we've seen recoveries uh, like the Leafs, you know, they went from last to a playoff spot off a, you know, very important draft lottery win. But still, you can recover quickly in the NHL if you hit on your high picks. However, the Islanders had Andrew Ladd, Josh Bailey, who's actually pretty good, Cal Clutterbuck, um, Johnny Boychuk, Nick Letty, Thomas Hickey. Also, Thomas Hickey is okay. But all of those guys were signed for term, and they were paying out something like $25 million four years from now before Lou Lamarillo even showed up. Like they were committed to a pretty substantial cap hit in that season. A lot of those contracts are going to end really badly, and I almost wonder if Lou Lamarillo was coming at it for an angle of, okay, yes, we're going to be bad. Uh, we can't see our way clear to being a really competitive hockey team in the next four seasons. All we have to really build around is Matt Barzell, who is terrific. He's a great starting piece. But we really need to kind of uh, grit our teeth and accept that we're going to have a tough time for a few seasons. If you go in with that attitude, cap space stops being as important. And you start looking at things like, okay, can we get guys who are going to teach the kids, inculcate team culture, all of that good stuff that we mostly discount? Um, and the Islanders were not a good team defensively last season at all. They were abjectly bad. A lot of it was their forwards were not great defensively. And I'm sure that there's an element of, you know, Leo Komarov is going to come in and teach the guys to do some stuff. Barry Trotz, who's their new coach, is going to try and build some sort of commitment to team defense. I do wonder if they're looking at a four-year tank. Because once you start doing that, you get less concerned about money. I'm not saying you can't still do things with cap space for like a pump and dump. And ultimately, I think four years is too long to write off. But I sort of got what Lou Lamarillo was attempting to do here. I don't know that I agree with it, but I thought it was more coherent than maybe people were saying. Believe me, I love laughing at other teams in bad contracts, as this podcast proves. But I think that there's a logic there. I, 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 as you said, four years is just way too long to throw away, mm. though. That's a ridiculous amount of time to throw away. So I, I, don't, it is. I don't think it's their intention to throw it away. I think... I think Maybe they recognize, okay, we're going to be bad for a couple years. Yeah. And hopefully we'll turn it around. And then at that point, those contracts only have a couple years. They're low value. They can be buried. They can be uh, potentially traded. Who knows? Yeah. Right? And you, you know what? We should concede that we thought, you know, Matt Martin was exactly this type of contract. And we thought it would be harder to get rid of than it has. Yeah. Um, now, granted, we got to trade it to the guy who signed it. So <laughs> that's kind of weird, but... Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Um, I'm kind of curious as to what they're doing. I, I just I just think that, you know, there was a lot of mocking chatter from Leafs Twitter saying stuff like, oh, we obviously chose the right guy, Dubas over Lou. And I think we did. But I don't think that Lou has suddenly gone senile. 
Um, I don't know if he's I gone that, senile, but I, I think I, I disagree with you on this and that I think mm-hmm. the simplest explanation is just that they're just bad moves. They're just bad moves. Yeah. And, you know, maybe. Uh, I, I think that there's an element of that. Again, I don't like the length on any of these contracts. Uh, although it's worth noting that the Johnston one is variable. Yeah. So that may not matter. Uh, the Komarov deal you can buy out. But, um, yeah, you know, it, it's not the the kind of decision-making that I'm super excited to see. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess I find it more coherent. I do know he signed Matt Martin when he expected us to be bad. And then when the Leafs started getting good faster than maybe most people were prepared for, we didn't sign a deal like that again. Yeah. Um, I, that's why I associate it with this is a move you make when you expect your team will be bad. Mm. Uh, I don't know, you know, but I agree on the four years thing. I think that, that you should be trying to be good sooner than that, especially considering they have Barzil. Yeah. Who is a 1C. Yeah, exactly. They have, they have a superstar. Yeah. But, you, you know, we'll see. Uh, I don't know really what's going to happen with the Islanders. It's going to be a bad couple of years where they're not going to have <laughs> much of a team to watch. You know, they're going to be tough and they're going to have a lot of heart. And I've seen a lot of Sour Grapes commenter, commentary from Isles fans saying like, you know, we're going to be way tougher to play against than we were with Softy Johnny Pajamas. You're going to be really bad, man. Like, you're going to be a really terrible team next year. Um, you know, maybe your goaltending works itself out and somebody goes on a hot streak. That's about it. Beyond that, this is a lottery team. I feel like the best case scenario is almost like the Leafs 2015-2016 season in terms of how mm-hmm. good they were. They're a, a roster without a ton of talent, excepting a few high-end players. Uh, and, yeah. and, and they do have a good coach, so maybe the, they'll surprise people in that regard. But yeah, it's hard to see them. I feel like they should want a tank for at least... Like, I think if I was running that team, I would probably try and do a one-year quick tank. And then depending yeah. on how guys like Wallstrom... And who was the other guy they got? They get they didn't get Bouchard. They got Dobson. They got Dobson, right? So depending on how I think so, yeah. how Wallstrom and Dobson look a year from now, maybe they're ready for the NHL. And you can make a turnaround pretty yeah. fast with young talent. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, is that they have Eberle and Nelson and Lee, and Lee who are all going to go UFA. You could probably after, get uh, good. The other thing they could do if they if they sold all those guys off, they would probably get a pretty penny mm. back. Yeah, I mean, you should be looking at uh, a fistful of firsts, I would think. Jordan Everly should bring you back, like, a couple of first-round picks in any universe. Like, he's a very good player. Uh, Nelson's a good player. Anders Lee, um, I would be trying to sell Anders Lee now, to well, be honest with you. you. Know, do you know what? I, I, would, I would hope, if I'm them, I, I run Lee with, like, Barzil. Or I, yeah. I hope that Lee has a strong start to the season. And we can be like, hey, he's not just Johnny Pajamas running mate. <laughs> I'm just gonna start yeah, calling him true. Johnny Pajamas all, all the time now. I'm totally fine with it's it. It's a good name. I, it is great. Um, you, you know, uh, if we win the cup with Johnny Pajamas, I'm totally fine running that in the headline with him holding the cup up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. So I don't know. I guess I just maybe it was kind of the gloating tone on Leafs Twitter, which, by the way. Again, I'm totally down for that. I'm big on gloating. And we've done a lot of damage to the New York Islanders in the most simple and obvious way, which is that we stole their superstar. Mm -hmm. Um, I say stole kind of glibly. He made a free decision to move to another team. 
but I, I don't, I would say I always thought that Lou Lamorello's moves, you know, there was that kind of dichotomy of the good moves were Lou moves and the, sorry, the good moves were Dubas moves and the bad moves were Lou moves. Um, I always thought that that was a little simplistic and I think Lou is a little smarter than he's gotten credit for. Um, but yeah, you know, that fourth year, that's always the rub, isn't it? The fourth year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Was there any other, any other signings you wanted to uh, discuss? I mean, Brady Shea got re-signed. That seems like a solid deal. He looks like he's a good player. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there was Jason Zucker yeah. in Minnesota, who is worth noting. I, I mean, it, Very good, a good player. signing. Very he's good a good player. player. Very good player. He's 26. You know, it's not like it's going to take him into any kind of scary arc of the age curve. It's just, you know, what is Minnesota going to do? Yeah, that's the, I mean, the question it, of them. It's, it's like, that's a question about this move, and more question about like what's going to happen with their team overall. Because this mm-hmm. move itself is fine; it's good. Even. Yep. Uh, it's just they're in, they're in a yeah. weird spot where they have a lot of money tied up in some guys who are rapidly aging out. They have some good young talent, but it seems clear that what they currently have is not enough to make them a contender. So. Mm-hmm. Do they just ride it out and say, you know what, we're a good team, we can get to the playoffs, maybe catch lightning in a bottle, make a make a run? Mm-hmm. Do they try and totally go scorched earth? It, it, it's hard to say. Um, again, we're not experts on their situation, but it, I, I'm curious to see how they go about it. They have a lot of players that, that I would covet, although, see, one, one downside of the lease signing of ours is because now we're so capped out in terms of taking on long-term money. It, it's very, very mm-hmm. hard to, like, <laughs> to pine after players anymore because it's like what if we can't even fit them under the cap yeah like people were talking about you know eric carlson and stuff like absolutely in my dreams but like obviously that's not gonna happen yeah there's a zero percent chance of that um but yeah you know I, I do wonder about like what do you do when you're the minnesota wild they have parise and Suter signed for seven more years mm-hmm. At a cap hit of uh, 7.538. No, and, you know, it declines in dollar value, but, like, I don't even know. If they retire out of it, I think that the Wild would be eating a pretty massive cap recapture penalty, would they not? Um, they would, but, I mean, I think if you're the Wild, you're just hoping that you get two compliance buyouts. Yeah, that's the and, thing. And then, just pull, and hang in for the next And then they're back in the game immediately. Yeah. Hey, and, maybe, that's what, that, maybe that's the lose angle, too. Wait for the compliance buyouts. You know. It's not a terrible idea. I, I do kind of find it interesting. I mean, if they're waiting for the compliance buyouts, I would probably use one on Andrew Ladd. But, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's the thing. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I, I do. That's sort of an interesting aside issue is, like, who is waiting on a compliance buyout? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of nice that the Leafs are not doing that at the moment because – there were many times in the last decade where we would have been waiting to buy someone out. The only contract that's really kind of scary in any kind of long-term way right now to me is Zaitsev. And even then, eh, I honestly think Zaitsev you know. is like, he's like a good 25 games away from being very tradable on that deal. Yeah. You know, like, you know. It, it's, it's $4 million. It's it, It's a, not a huge amount. If, if you're even convinced that he's a decent fourth defenseman, it's not a bad deal. Yeah. Or it's on, a, it's on an awful deal. The yeah. term is still obviously There are a lot of people... But... Yeah. But again, like it, it, you know, it takes him into his 30s, which isn't great. But, but it's also... It, it, you it's, know, people look at... It's scary in one way, but it's also like you have cost certainty over that time where you would 
presume that the cap might be increasing, right? So yeah, the the other thing about Zaitsev, you know, people look at, at his CF percentage, which is generally not great, and uh, the, his proclivity for icings, which I don't love either, but I think might be a bit of a systems issue. At the same time, like, who's a better right defenseman On the that we have? Yeah, or that we're gonna get? You, you know, know, I think uh, some people would argue Carrick, and it's actually an argument I, I have know. some time for because Carrick's stats are, with the exception of point scoring, which is kind of, it, who cares? For a defenseman, to a certain extent, like points are often a product of how lucky you are in your forwards. So. Yeah, exactly. But Carrick's stats are like are, are are pretty solid. The thing is, Carrick has never really gotten the trust of Mike Babcock. And that means like, his mm-hmm. usage, even when he was with Gardner, was a little different than Gardner and Zaitsev. So there's a few factors to tease out into there. Yeah. I If there's one thing that I've kind of maybe turned a little reactionary on since I started being a bit of a stats nerd for hockey, it's that the third-pairing guy who gets dominant Corsi stats in third-pair minutes, I just am a little more skeptical of those guys than I ever have been in the past, with the obvious exception of our Lord and Savior, Martin Marinson, who did it against hard competition, too. Um, but, you know, in Carrick's case, I just... I don't know. I want to believe. I liked a lot about his game when I saw him play. I, I Maybe this is just me putting too much faith in Mike Babcock, but I find it hard to believe that we have, like, a genuine, solid top-four option sitting there in him. Um... So I don't know. Maybe that's just uh, too much natural skepticism and my inability to overcome my priors. But yeah, I uh, mean, well, the the thing is, one of the one of the things that worked really well for Vegas was actually those third pairing defensemen who started killing it in a bigger role, like Nate Schmidt, right? And and Shea Theodore, yeah. Theodore was different in that he was a highly touted prospect who had redonkulous AHL numbers as well. Yeah, I. You know what? I didn't. And you know, Colin Miller was the yeah. same thing. So those are fair points because sometimes that is what happens. So maybe Carrick just needs some, needs some opportunity. goddamn ice. And but it's hard to we say. We did resign him for a year. Yeah. It's hard to say whether that's, uh, hey, maybe these third-pairing defensemen aren't devalued, or maybe it's just like, hey, we found two guys. You know, we, we flipped two heads. Yeah, right. basically. Nate Schmidt looked good, too, whenever I saw him. Yeah. Whereas Carrick and the eye test... Arnaldo was friends. I know I'm falling back on the... I'm just selling out all of my stats cred now, aren't I? Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, Nate Schmidt looked really impressive to me. Mm-hmm. Whenever we played against him, I'm thinking of the series against Washington where um, the Caps started relying on Carl Alsner, which I was like, that's a mistake. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, at, at any rate, to bring that back around to Zaitsev, he looks still like our top four right-handed defense option. Like, there are a lot of people who are saying, I would unload that contract at the side of the road if you let me get a chance. Like, I would waive him and hope he gets claimed. And I'm like, I still think that makes the team worse. Yeah. Like, I just don't buy that he's that bad. Yeah, I you know, I honestly wonder about that. We've talked about this before. It's just the Leafs don't have that many right-sided defensemen. I, honestly, the Leafs' best right-sided defenseman is Morgan Riley playing on the right side. Yeah, <laughs> that's the bottom line. And I think if, um, if it becomes clear that Dermot is the Leafs' third best defenseman, I think they have mm. to move either him or Riley to the right side because it just it doesn't make sense to play one of your three best defensemen 
16, 17 minutes a night. Yeah, like at a certain point, you just got to say, damn, the handedness falls to be the head. Mm-hmm. I know that there's a, uh, there's a lot of literature about the overall shot impacts, and I think it's something like, this is what I remember off the top of my head, but I think it's something like six shots net per 60 minutes. Which is a pretty sizable amount. Like the, it's a yeah, lot. It's quite a bit. Um, and Dermot was, Dermot had like sterling results. And so he was more than six shots per 60 minutes, better than Zaitsev playing on his left side, usually playing in third pair minutes. So I think that's a distinct question for, from whether or not you can just drop Dermot into Zaitsev's job and expect him to be better. I think with this thing, it's, it's uh, very, very individual specific. Like I, I think yeah, the, the literature like, attempts I don't to think. do something very smart and like it's a good question to ask but i think when it comes down to it it comes down to the individual player more than more than anything else like you can say on average this is what happens but realistically what you think is going to happen would change drastically based on the player in question yeah that's absolutely fair and you know i'm sure some guys are just better at playing offhanded than others Mm -hmm. You know, it's a specific skill like anything else. Yeah, because, I mean, if you but think this... about it, some parts of your game are more effective than others, right? So, mm-hmm. If you, the other thing is that, um, I'm just thinking if Connor character likes to do this, but if you like to shoot, I mean, you do get an inside shot, mm-hmm. which I, I don't know how useful that always is for defensemen, but it, you know, it moves your stick to the inside of the ice. And it makes it a little easier to play the puck towards the danger areas. So I could see it having some offensive use at the same time as it's harder to pull to hold the puck in along the wall. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah, you know, uh, this is one of the limitations of stats, which actually I think sets up a good segue. It does. So it is summer, and that means we are contractually required on Hockey Twitter to have our annual civil war. You, you should have gotten, <laughs> you know, you should have gotten the email a while back, but you know these things get lost. So. I understand if you missed it. Um, but anyways, luckily for you, Neil Greenberg got it started uh, on July 23rd, which was last Monday, with a tweet that said the following. Uh, Hockey analytics is at an all-time low, in my opinion. We've had nothing but Corsi-based stats for almost a decade, and tracking data that is available is not 100% accessible or complete. Not to mention most graphics being shared have little to no context or explanation. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, the first sentence, Hockey Analytics is at an all-time low, in my opinion. I will be um, as diplomatic as Fuhlman was earlier in response to David Staples, and I'll say that this is asinine. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it's, it's just not true. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, it, like, I, I don't know what to say. It, it's just not true. There's actually a lot of pretty cool research going into Hockey Analytics now. Um, uh, Namitha and at NN Stats on Twitter has done some really cool uh, stuff using borrowing concepts from actuarial science to talk about aging and when draft picks are expected to uh, mature and become NHLers. That's very, very phenomenal stuff. We see, we have new wins above replacement models coming out pretty much every week at this point. I'll, I'll get into that later, but certainly there is no lack of attempts to further our knowledge for the game, and I think we know more now than we knew a year ago. We knew more a year ago than we did two years ago, we are definitely getting smarter at these sorts of things. Now, whether we're getting smarter at a fast enough rate for Mr. Greenberg's uh, satisfaction, that's another question. So that's kind of what the rest of his statement addresses. It says, we've had nothing but Corsi-based stats for almost a decade. So I'll address that. that. That's true, but 
there's something kind of that rubs me the wrong way where he's or when he says this as if people aren't trying to go beyond that and the answer to this is that it's, just, it's really hard it, it's kind of like he's poking nerds with a stick it's like come on work faster this is easy why haven't you done it yet it's, well, well it's because math is really fucking difficult <laughs> like like no seriously they try it it's really really hard and, and i will 100 percent admit to bias here because i'm a PhD student in statistics, my job every day is to solve math problems, solve very hard math problems. And if I could do it in a day, I would, but I can't. And the same is true of these hockey analysts. There are reasonable criticisms to make of their work. However, the reason that we've had nothing but Corsi-based stats for almost a decade, well, first off, that's not true in of itself, now that expect goals is actually becoming a thing. But secondly, it's because it's very difficult to break down hockey further because, A, we don't have the data, and hockey's a very fluid game. Um, do you want to chime in on here before I go on a 10-minute soliloquy? <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. I think, uh, and this is always the case with any tweet that really riles up hockey Twitter, I think he phrased his opening line poorly, because I get the impression that wasn't exactly what he meant. Hockey analytics is at an all-time low. You're right, like, that's just dumb. That's not true. Uh, we've progressed, and also the stuff that we had, we had 10 years ago, and we've built on it, you, you know? Um, I, I don't think that, as con constituted, there's any way that it's true. Um, you can say progress has become more arcane, I think. It's more difficult. As you say, the hockey statistics are kind of sophisticated now in some ways in terms of what people are doing with them. Corsi is counting. Like, there's no reason that anyone should be scared of Corsi because it's just counting an attempt to take a shot. There's nothing mathematical going on there that, eh, you know, most of us couldn't do when we were, like, nine years old. And I say this because I'm not, like, a math student. And so when it gets more complicated than that, I start having to take a lot of stuff on faith. Um, but I do think that there is, like, an element of it's getting harder to access uh, for the ordinary person. Like, you're still able to understand and criticize some of these models. You know what's going into mm -hmm. them. Um, I can't now. It's beyond me. There was a point at which I knew everything mathematically that was going on, or if I didn't know how to do it, I understood what was being done. Now, in a lot of cases, I have to kind of take on faith that certain things are being done correctly or legitimately. And there's an issue of overfitting in some models. Like, I forget which one it was being talked about, but we were talking with um, one of our friends, and he was talking about a particular model and how some of the weights being applied there seemed like the person making the model was just trying to make it look right. Y you know, like the names that were coming up at the top of the lists mm -hmm. um, were kind of being tinkered with so that the right names showed up, so that it showed that uh, the best players in the league were the players everyone thinks of as the best players. That's, you know, I know that's not legitimate, but when that happens, I don't have the math cred to know it. And when you go in the other direction with something like Emmanuel Perry's uh, wins above replacement, which I'm given to understand from you is, you know, rigorous, at least mathematically, like he's trying to do the right thing. It tosses out results that I can't accept. Um, so I do find that it's kind of moving away from me in a way. Uh, and I find it getting 
maybe more complicated. I don't think that that means that there's not progress being made. It's just the progress is maybe outstripping the ordinary fan in some ways. Yeah, I, I think it's reasonable to be a little disillusioned about that and to be to kind of express mild annoyance that, man, I wish I could understand these things better. Um, at the same time, it's, it's sort of a weird criticism to levy as if we're no longer making progress because like no one says, man, I miss the days when medicine, I could understand exactly why a doctor said we should do this, <laughs> right? Like no, no one's like, oh, you know, I don't understand chemotherapy that well, so I don't think we should really use it. I don't trust it. You, we, we accept that- Leeches and bone saws, that's all you yeah, need. <laughs> we accept that there are fields where people require expertise to really understand things. And that's that that's literally every field in human existence, right? Like that that's- there are experts in every field and the rest of us take it on faith to some degree that these experts know what they're talking about and they have studied it in further detail than we have. And, you know, yeah. we should, we have to kind of respect that fact. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a bizarre frustrating to me, especially you know. as we've seen it happen with basically every other sport. The, the first sabermetric revolution in baseball was realizing that on base percentage was incredibly important. And there was nothing mathematical about that. It was just realizing that, in baseball outs are the most scarce resource and on base percentage is a very simple reflection of who does not make outs yeah so uh, the same thing with Corsi, which is like get shots on net or just try and shoot the puck is like the most basic classic how to get yourself out of a slump advice in hockey and so Corsi was just that now it's it's more than that now what's going on is more than that um which I think ties into his second point, which I do have more time for, which is most graphics being shared have little to no context or explanation. So you get these very pretty looking graphs that are even more intuitive, you, you know, and some of them I can figure out very quickly what they're trying to tell me. But when they're bringing information to me that I can't understand on its own account, like where it's, you know, a wins above replacement model where I don't have a clue what's going on, you can put that into a graph and show it to me, and I can point right at it and say, look, you know, uh, Connor Carrick's bar is bigger than Zaitsev bar. Checkmate, atheists. Yeah. But there's an issue there of I'm going based on how pretty the graph is as opposed to my understanding of the stat, which is minimal. Yeah, and I mean, th this is the part of Greenberg's tweet that I actually do sort of agree with. Um, I think mm -hmm. a lot of the charts that are posted on hockey Twitter are bad. Um, bad in the sense yeah. that they don't necessarily convey information as well as they should, bad in the sense that they're misleading, bad in the sense that they imply a level of certainty that we don't actually have. And I think that's a justifiable complaint. It's something that I've, I've brought up many times where, you know, for example, if, if you put a war model in, in, a, in a chart form, basically, like, that's intrinsic on, as you said, that's intrinsic on understanding the war model and its, its faults and whatnot. And obviously you, don't, you can't explain that every single time because that's clunky and that we don't expect that of anyone in any field. We expect that people who are interested in something will do the digging themselves. But I do think there could be more acknowledgement from, these, from the chart creators and from the content creators of the, the flaws and the potential shortcomings of their stat. I think by and large, actually people do a decent job of this, but there are some where I think people are, as you said, they, they, they look at a graph, they see one bar is bigger than another, and they say checkmate. And that's not how it should mm -hmm. work. You ha need to have a healthy appreciation for 
what is going what is going on behind the graph and making sure you understand it before you actually make any conclusions. Again, I'm a little biased here, but that's something I put more on the interpreter of the data as opposed to the person making it. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I will freely admit that is part of my my bias. What do you think? I mean, it's, I think that, you know, it, it's inevitable. Uh, you talked about it in baseball, right? But it's the professionalization of stats analysis uh, that goes on in the sport, right? And so hockey... Uh, you know, most fans aren't interacting with Corsi at yeah. all. Like even even that basic stuff, like they don't care about it. They're not interested in it. They're skeptical of it. You know, uh, how many people do you know who you, you quote Corsi to and they still roll their eyes? And moving even beyond that, what percentage of fans really get it? Um, is it? Is it 1%? Is, is it less than 1%? You know? And I think that makes people uncomfortable. And they think, is this game that I love, that I watch pretty freely, now moving into something I totally can't understand? So it's the same sort of thing that happened with the first wave of hockey analytics, where you would get mainstream reporters or mainstream fans saying, like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Just watch the games. You don't understand. Because you feel your knowledge of the game being made obsolete. Now that's happening to another class of people who were probably on board with the first stats revolution. Uh, and it's moving more and more in the direction of a very few people understand it. Many of them are employed by teams. Um, the development is harder to parse. You have to have a more skeptical eye as to what's really being done mm -hmm. here. And we are all, I think, waiting for tracking data to some extent because the NHL is allegedly going to do that soon. And we will get more sophisticated data there. But I think really what's making people uncomfortable in analytics is the move towards it being harder and harder for the layperson to understand. And people are feeling like they're getting maybe a little bit left behind. Yeah. And at the same time, it's like, I can't tell the snake oil from the good stuff anymore. Yeah. As a side note, I think this is part of why Dello is so popular because his analysis is never complex mathematically, ever. He basically mm -hmm. uses Corsi, he uses goals, he uses pretty rudimentary ideas uh, and then he frames interesting yeah. questions around them and I think there is certainly value to what he does but by no means is it mathematically robust in, in the same way that I would say someone like Dom Nishishin's or Emmanuel Perry's work is or, or Michael McCurdy's work um, or, or any other of the people who I mentioned before like Namitha as well it, 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 it's entirely different Dello does a lot of slicing and dicing he, he pulls uh, he often categorizes things into different subsets like what happens after a face-off and you know he'll sometimes omit some data he never score adjusts which always annoys me um mm. things like that like it it's easy to understand and he poses very very interesting questions and is able to answer them in a way that i think very few people are able to but i think there, there's there's flaws to that he, he's not analyzing the game um in as necessarily a mathematically proficient way as other people and, that, and that, that matters it may not seem like it does but that sort of thing matters because sometimes he does commit flaws within his analysis that uh, of throwing away data of ignoring certain effects of you know mixing together different um, effects into one into one thing of, of binning of bucketing things like that it that that's one of my misgivings with him uh, this that's this ah, this got a little bit sidetracked but 
I do. You know what, though? I think that that does bear on the point. In the earliest wave of stats analytics, Dello was kind of the godfather yeah. of the art. Uh, he was revolutionary. Dello was a lawyer by training. I have a great deal of sympathy for people who are lawyers by training. But they don't teach us math in law school. Uh, I vividly remember uh, in my family law course that I took in second year uh, where there was an audible groan from the class when we would have to calculate division of property um, ourselves. And they gave us a calculator in order to do it on the exam. Division of property involves subtracting one number from another number and then dividing it by two. That's the extent of the math that we were asked to do. Now, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on Dello, who is more mathematically sophisticated than that, uh, or than, you know, the bunch of liberal arts majors who decided to go to law school with me. But it does mean that where before his level of proficiency with math was greater than, you know, kind of the standard in hockey analytics, now it's less than a lot of the people who are leading the wave. And it's more complicated. It doesn't mean that his writing is bad or useless. I mean, we've talked yeah, about it. Yeah, and it's certainly not. Times, he, as you he, said. He has, his work has a lot of value. I'll be perfectly clear about that. His, his work is very interesting, very thought-provoking, even if it's not the most mathematically rigorous thing in the world. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. But, you know, the trend is more math, more analysis. I don't think it's even penetrated that far in a lot of NHL front offices, no, even so. I, I think they're probably uh, still mostly on counting things. Yeah, and, you know, Justin Bourne was talking about how he thinks that a lot of the time the analytics guys in the front office are preparing reports that are not read. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is probably true in a lot of cases, or at least it makes a lot of moves from teams that allegedly have an analytics department a lot easier to understand. Um, so, yeah, but I think there is a trend that may be taking time to get there, but... It is more professionalizing of the game. It is making it a little harder to understand. And I get why that makes people uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm interested on Greenberg's angle on it. Like, does he want it? Like, is he impatient with it moving faster? Is his discomfort that he doesn't like where it's going? Uh, it's framed as it's not getting there fast enough. And maybe that's all he thinks. But uh, w with respect to Greenberg, some of the stuff that I've seen him do is not mathematically impressive at all. Okay. So, um, I, I don't know what his angle is there, but I think this is something that we're going to have to worry about as that yeah, is. I mean, as a site, we do less analytic work than we, we once did because things have changed. It seems like Greenberg wants something that is both accessible and an improvement on Corsi. And I think mm. if that was possible with the data that we had, it would have already happened because people are definitely trying. And I, I think yeah. one very valid criticism of the people who make these war models is that they're trying to do something that the data doesn't necessarily support yet. Like right now with the current data, I, I think it's just, it's not that possible to, to separate out exactly what players are having an impact on driving goals uh, the way that we would like mm -hmm. to. It doesn't mean it's not worth trying, but I think it, the fact is it's just very, very difficult to do right now. Uh, I, I certainly respect the endeavor that these guys have made. It's not easy at all, mm -hmm. but I, I, I question whether the data matches up to the ambition right now. I, I don't think it does. And tracking no. data will, will change that significantly. But yeah, it's just, this, uh, this happens in every, in every sport, in every field. As you start with the, the most basic tools, you see how far those can take you. And when you start running into problems that can't be solved with those, you have to either find new tools or develop them. And 
those new tools are inevitably more complicated than the ones you started out with. And along the way, you're yeah. going to lose some people. And that's, that's just the way it works. That's how research works. That's how learning things works. It gets more complicated. If it was easy to do, someone would have done it already. And I mean, yeah. this is why we, we see some tension within the stats community with, with kind of the old guard guys like, like Dello. And I, I don't mean that in any sort of pejorative sense. I mean, the guys who kind of stick to the rudimentary, accessible and interpretable mathematical ideas um, and try and answer questions using those through some creative ways. And people like Emmanuel Perry, who use much more sophisticated mathematical techniques, um, which, which have a lot more power and a lot more ability to potentially explain effects that just looking at the data in various forms does not but is less interpretable, is less accessible, is harder to understand. Mm -hmm. I, you know, if the NHL were trying to be a progressive league and we have zero evidence that they ever right. are, I think that they would put more effort than they have done into bridging that gap, into explaining in a, even a general way what's going on mm -hmm. there. Like, you don't even have to use the math that you're basing your conclusions on. You're saying... If you can give me the one line summary of like what you concluded from that, and then it's there for the people who can look at it and try and find the basis. But, you know, Austin Matthews is such a good shooter because he has an amount of individual pre-shot movement or something. So he makes a move before he shoots or something. I made that up. But like, if you could get a conclusion like that, you could at least make this make sense to people. I think that bridging the gap between you know, what a regression analysis is and, you know, the log loss contest that I see going on <laughs> in terms of predictions and stuff like that. Stuff that really is beyond my understanding. Uh, and then the game that's actually played on the ice, I think you would scare fewer people. And I think that the discomfort that people experience in terms of the game that they know and love and is tangible to them and is tangible to me, um, being made into a math contest you could dissipate some of the tension there by just turning it, by making that connection clearer and more explicit. I would like to see more of that happen when we do get the tracking data. Uh, I don't know if it will, Yeah, but I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, look, there are other things that the hockey analytics community can definitely get criticism for. I've seen a lot of people argue that they've themselves become a bit of an old boys club, and I can definitely see how mm -hmm. that's true. I can't comment on that because I have never really been a part of it per se and never really attempted to uh at least really do any sort of original research on 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 hockey i mean doing research is my day job i don't want it to be my night job too <laughs> um this is very fair so i'm sure like there are very valid things to criticize the stats community for um whether it comes to like inclusion and you know the work that they're doing and uh, as i said i have my doubts about whether the data that we have right now really supports the idea of even attempting these sorts of wins above replacement models that uh, seem somewhat imperfect as of right now. But I, I think it's a mischaracterization. I actually, I think it's just outrightly patently false to say that hockey analytics is at its all-time low point. I think what's happening is that things are getting more complicated, things are getting tougher to follow, and you have to in order to really be on the cutting edge of this sort of stuff now and really understand it, you have to have a bit more specialized knowledge. And that means it's less accessible to people, but it also means that it's getting more sophisticated and 
closer to answering problems that are difficult to answer with traditional means. I think that uh, that gets down to it. There's one last sort of related point that I'd like to make. I think the quality of a lot of hockey analysis in the mainstream, I want to emphasize, is pretty bad. Mm-hmm. I think that it's more than just being bad, I think it is worse than other sports. I think a lot of the breakdowns you see in intermissions are not impressive. A lot of the chatter you hear is still basically the guy wants to win more than this other guy. And maybe in some cases that's true. In most cases that is someone, pardon my expression, whistling Dixie out of their asshole. There's such a a low bar to clear to be kind of intelligent. And I wish we had a writer working in hockey on a par with Zach Lowe Mm -hmm. in the NBA. Like, I don't follow basketball, really. I keep a sort of a vague eye on it so that I can, you know, talk with people who do watch the Raptors and just, like, have two or three things to say before I run out. But Zach Lowe is such a good writer at incorporating pretty sophisticated hockey analysis. uh, Sorry, basketball analysis, excuse me. Uh, and making it understandable um, that I really think that he does a credit to the analysis of his sport. There are good writers doing stuff in hockey. I hope that we occasionally do good stuff in mm-hmm. hockey. Uh, but I, you know, I think, and again, you know, I like to, to read Bourne at The Athletic. I think that he has a more interesting analysis of systems than you often see. But I think along with the rising quality of the math, we're going to need a rising quality of writing and analysis that still doesn't seem to quite be breaking through. You know, look at the featured columnists at Sportsnet a lot of the time. Some of them are good. Some of them are interesting. Uh, This is not me trying to antagonize Andrew Berkshire again. But um, some of them are writing in a still pretty simplistic way that's right out of about 1994. Uh, And so to bring this all the way around to full circle, I called David Staples a dumb writer which is me being kind of snarky, but like a lot of what he does is kind of nastily dismissive of all mm-hmm. the progress that's been made in hockey analysis. And I think it's actually detrimental that this is still the major reporter of record of the Edmonton Journal on the, the Oilers. Yeah. If we're going to ever get around on that accessibility problem, we're going to do it with writers who are better than David Staples. Yeah. Um, to go back to... Yeah, to go back to Zach Lowe for a second, he, he's aided by just yeah. the immense amount of data that the NBA provides. It, it's much easier to mm-hmm. solve, to answer interesting questions there with accessible ideas. Um, but it, it, like in front offices there, they're using complex like machine learning and um, artificial intelligence stuff and kind of really rigorous ideas. And yeah. I, I think Hawking will get there. It's just the data is very very slow it's not accessible which again is another very astute point that greenberg points out the tracking data isn't public it's not accessible we've, we've written about this before right in, in, mm-hmm. in our piece that got you blocked by mr berkshire um <laughs> i just want to make friends yeah, that's, yeah, all. that's exactly what we want to do um but yeah it's <laughs> it's a complicated situation uh these fields are nascent and they change quickly and it's not always going to change in a way that makes it more accessible for every single person to understand exactly what's going on. But that's, I think, is just the natural development of the field. 
Uh, do you have anything else to add or should yeah. we wrap this up? I think that's about the size of it, but I will say in a reassuring way, I don't understand the math, so I'm mostly going to count on Arvin to tell me stuff, and I won't be able to confuse you with complicated mathematics because I don't know what they are. <laughs> so I'll try and be accessible for the future while still, again, being a little better than David Staples. A high bar. All right. Um, thank you, everyone, for <laughs> listening. You can find all of mine and Fuleman's stuff at pensionplanpuppets.com. As we alluded to earlier in the podcast, we are doing our top 25 under 25 series. It's a lot of fun. You should check that out. We'll have a lot of great content up uh, on the site. So uh, with that said, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.